Join me, Harriet Gould, for the Lab Matters podcast to hear fascinating stories every week from the inspiring people behind the science. In the next episode, we have design engineer Jude Cullen, who has worked at companies including Lego and Dyson. Join us to hear what makes Jude compare his work to being a chef. Hello, Jude. So today uh, we've got Jude Pullen with us. Now, we're very lucky because Jude's a multi-award winning product designer, engineer and creative technologist. Um, And that sounds exciting. So we'll we'll go into that. Um, And Jude, you've worked with some of the world's best known design design teams, including the teams at Dyson and Lego. And they really are household names that we're all familiar with. Um, And I kind of want to break that down a bit before we go into the work. Um, I, I want to know about the problems that you're solving for these companies um and, and how you how you go about it yeah i think i think the the phrase uh, or the job title of creative technologist seems to be a reasonably uh new one and indeed i i slightly uh was inspired by uh, a technologist i met and she had this wonderful route into her career of actually starting off as as a cleaner uh, I believe in a like basically media agency company and worked away all the way up to the top to be a director. And she always sort of just described it as very much having a a sort of unique perception of technology, but also on the sort of familiar and everyday sort of things that surround our lives. And so <clears throat> I think the thing I I really enjoyed about that, and I think the way I've internalized that is to sort of say that I either look at the cutting edge technology that's out there and try and simplify it so that companies can understand how to sort of, as it were, operate with it. Um, Or indeed, I sort of, I think this is nothing new. I can't take credit for it because I think companies like Nintendo do it all the time very well, uh, which is take something that you think you've got very familiar with, but give it a really fresh twist. Um, So I, I sort of, tend to sort of use those techniques uh very frequently but of course uh, i think it's fair to say there's a little bit more to it than that as well and we'll, i guess we'll get into that as uh we progress well indeed um i love i love that a, fre- a fresh twist it's so so easily said i don't i don't I suppose it's as easily achieved <laughs> overnight um <clears throat> now you've done a bit of telework as well haven't you you've um you were on the bbc's big Six. um yeah and- and on the the Great British Inventions program, which is on Channel Four, um, what what tell us a bit more about those programs? How you were involved, and um, what what you what what it was like being a part of them. I mean, from the point of view of the responsibility, I suppose being one of a, not particularly many um, people who represent science to the wider world. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was one of those, you know, funny things of the, I guess, to sort of give a little bit of context. Um, I ended up uh, growing up in the country and not really knowing what a designer was. And so consequently, as as you know, having met me at Sugru, I ended up um, being a chemist. Um, and the, the funny thing was, I really loved that insight into the atomic and how things work. But, you know, if you if you sort of call that the micro scale, I was also really fascinated by the macro scale. And so long story short, ended up um, quitting my day job um, at a horticultural specialist, which, of course, wasn't particularly relevant to my degree in chemistry and retraining in product design engineering at Glasgow after seeing a TV show called Better by Design. And so 
it was quite strange to have gone for all of this sort of, you know, career at Dyson and things like this and Sugru, and then realized I was in the fortunate position of helping make a TV show, which at the time I was just hanging on by the seat of my pants, really, because it was a bit of a whirlwind experience. But now having sort of spoken to so many students and indeed teachers, you know, you can't help but realize it. it is the same sort of inspiration that it was to me seeing Seymour, Seymour and Powell um, when they were sort of designing. So, of course, the emphasis has changed slightly, but that fascination with helping people through design, I think, is the, the thread that connects all of those uh, sort of genre, if you can call it that, um, of programs together. And, um, yeah, I'm very proud to be one of the the eight designers that took part in that. Hmm. It is. It is. It is a, a great achievement um, to be whittled down. Um, so, when we're talking about redesigning things that that already exist, when, can you do that for any company? Does it have to be a, anything significant? <laughs> anything can be a water bottle or a printer or what's the range? Yeah. I, I I'm worried some people are now going to sort of almost like hit the pause button and give up on this if I say yes I genuinely believe I could work or indeed any designer in theory could work in any company at all and that's not because I have a sort of overinflated sense of capability it's that I genuinely believe in the design process the methodology that we're taught which is basically to deconstruct things but then to sort of dig around in the uncomfortable questions that is the sort of the, the human story within the technology and then basically reassemble things such that they make more sense. And, and often I sort of I try not to sort of go in as any sort of design sort of guru or shaman and rather someone who is just good at bridging different um, you know departments within a company and indeed different disciplines. Um, one of the sort of strangest things is that I'm not sort of uh short on should we say job offers um from companies saying come come work full time and it's always a weird slightly awkward conversation because the irony is i love working with lots of different companies and i think that's actually what makes me as it were effective and impactful is is bringing all that obviously i don't breach confidentiality or anything like this but if i've say just worked on a medical device then suddenly working on a project for children, it might be that I realize, hang on a minute, there's a scaled down version of this technology, which I wouldn't have even dreamt had been relevant until I just jumped into this new world. And so for me, it's, it's the fact that really people think that all industries are very, very different. And of course they are in a, in a nuanced level, but actually we're all part of, we're all living in the same time. We're all part of very similar generations. And so actually there is there is a shared um, aspiration between so many you know companies that are all sort of pushing forward in now 2023, 2024. And so that's the thing I really love it is is just applying the process of design to different companies with different teams. And, and that for me is the most exciting bit is, you know, I don't go in there as a sort of Paul Rand and say, this is it. This is the design you have you have paid for. Be be confident that it's reassuringly expensive. I, I genuinely love doing things from the ground up with the team and sharing that pride and and indeed the fear, the adrenaline rush that comes with. Is it going to work? Um, that for me is 
you know, what makes being a designer, I think, one of the most exciting jobs in the world. Well, it's so it's so nice to hear you be so so enthusiastic about it. Um, <laughs> I from a practical point of view as well, um, if, when, if you're if you're in a company, you don't necessarily see what's constantly in front of you. Whereas if you're fresh in and in for a shorter period of time, then you you get that the benefit of the perspective. Um, and I and I wonder if you know you mentioned adrenaline a lot. A lot of people that adrenaline effectively comes from uncertainty, and I think a lot of people mm. fear uncertainty rather than seek it. Um, yeah. And and I wonder why what it is about you that makes you seek it and be understand how to handle it and operate under that kind of pressure. Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't want to sort of uh, give any impression that I'm sort of trying to pass myself off as a sort of uh, Elon Musk wannabe. It's not a adrenaline seeking from, you know, being sort of braggadocious or, you know, very extreme in things. It You know, quite often what I'm doing, I think, is is for a company might be high risk, but it's still very calculated. It's premeditated. Um, you know, as you could say, we've done our homework uh, on on the risk that we're trying to put forward as a as a rational proposition. And sometimes often I, I, I come at it from the other direction, to be honest, which is that I sort of amongst amongst friends and peers, I, I think that we'd probably say we we find the fear in a company. And fear can be the uncertainty, as you sort of pointed out. And at the minute, that feels like, you know, AI, machine learning, data privacy, uh, sustainability, um, even diversity and inclusion. It doesn't mean that a company is racist, but it a lot of companies haven't figured out how to not just grudgingly <laughs> have more women or more people of color in positions of power, but actually see this as like the the intellectual acumen and the future proofing of a company. So I think it's it's about changing people's mindsets and de-risking their fear towards doing something that they are very unfamiliar with and, and doing that in a way that is empathetic and sensitive. And, and I choose empathetic rather than sympathetic <laughs> you know there's an important distinction there I don't have to disagree uh, or agree but but it's understanding their inner narrative and then trying to sort of create a safe place so that we can work on some of the thornier issues um, and build trust and build confidence so so for me I, I, I it's funny I get I get hired because of the technology and you know all the sort of engineering chops and letters after my name but really I feel most of what preoccupies me is the human questions. That's fantastic because that's what it all boils down to, really. When yeah. you think of anything, in fact, it's all about people. And so many times things are categorized and labeled and all the rest of it. And the constant through it all is people. <laughs> so, <it's very> <laughs> absolutely. Um, so that let's. Um, so you come up, you come up with a new, a new thing, a new, a new invention, and then, and then you have to you have to do patent citing what how how does that work you 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 want to make sure that nobody else can copy it or you want to protect it for a certain period of time yeah i think i think i've spent so long in and out of 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 patents that i i think maybe i have a bit of an author unorthodox opinion of it of even my final year project i i patented a mecha, uh, medical device and it was sort of a strangely 
you know, sort of a bit of a sort of baptism of fire because you realize you are, you know, trying to protect something so that the financial investment can be recouped by the company that hopes to acquire it. At the same time, the the actual real goal of a patent is to give it back to, to society, to the world after 20, 21 years. And so it's a sort of weird sort of ethical dilemma. And I think there's times where I think some, company, some companies can learn and profit as much from sometimes a, a, a careful strategy around even things like open source. Um, and I don't think it always has to be one of monopolizing a thing in order to get ahead. And, you know, case in point, this could be as sort of um, playful and fun as Arduino making uh, a little mini computer for anyone who doesn't know for prototyping available. But it could be as heavyweight as, you know, uh, Tesla making it battery technology. And, and that isn't necessarily just through the lens of Elon Musk being altruistic. It's that he wants a rising tide to lift all boats. If his preferred method of charging batteries is accepted wholesale, that means his company benefits from that rollout as well. So I, I think if I've learned anything from working with some terrific patent attorneys is that it's, it's not about hoarding nuts like a squirrel, <laughs> you know, it, it's about being really strategic and getting way ahead 20 years into the future minimum of your thinking uh, of a company's innovation pipeline. Um, and I, I absolutely love the, 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 the amount of times I've been in a, a patent meeting and we think that we're, you know, let's say I'm just looking at my fruit bowl here, but let's say we're trying to patent an orange and then you realize you could also make orange juice. And and that moment where suddenly you've you've deconstructed, as I've I've said with this word, which I enjoy, and realize that there's an, an entirely new um way to engage with something. Um, as as were eating an orange versus juicing an orange. And I think that sort of thing is really powerful in the company. And I think that's when companies go, right, I get it. That's what rock star creativity looks like is when they see that paradigm shift within their own range of capabilities, products or services suddenly take a leap into the unknown. But it makes total sense that that, that, that would be a good idea. That, I mean, you just can't beat it. That, that feeling of being part of a team when that moment strikes after doing all the homework is just, is just the best. Make it sound very appealing. <laughs> <laughs> Making orange juice. <laughs> yeah suddenly thirsty um so i mean yeah, to, to to me at least you you seem so so ahead of the curve you're practically drawing the curve um for us never mind being ahead of it you're paving the way effectively um and i just wondered uh how given that given your advanced natural way of thinking um and critical uh, overly over critical more more so than most people perhaps um, how you feel about uh, artificial intelligence entering the mainstream and what kind of impact or benefit you feel, what impact, negative or positive? Yeah, I can, I can, I can sense you're not trying to lead the question there. But um, yeah, I, I think being a technologist, you become acutely aware if you've done any homework on any sort of technology at all, that, that these things are always complicated. <clears throat> um, 
I, one of the examples I used to sort of, should we say, <laughs> soften people up to the notion that this is not so simple is most people, you know, appreciate that their phone has something called an accelerometer in it. And even if they don't know it by that term, they know that if they wiggle it around it, it has an ability to sense that. And that is an accelerometer. That device wasn't created for phones. It was created to guide missiles. Um, and that technology started off being millions of pounds worth of tech. Um, and of course, now it's, you know, pennies uh, to buy a sort of nine degree of freedom accelerometer. So it's it's kind of insane how the technology has, you know, morphed into not just being cheaper, but also ubiquitous to the point of it's applied in things that were never conceived by its, you know, originators of the technology. Um, and so when I look at AI, I think there's, you, you, it's basically impossible to predict that missile to smartphone application. But what you can predict, you know, because I don't think we've really changed over over this, uh, the, the 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 millennia, is is I think it comes down to ethics. Is how do you manage our ethical relationship? And I I do find it sometimes frustrating that, for example, you know, I guess I'm going to name names. Um, 23andMe was a company I was absolutely raring to send off my DNA and get all this fabulous data about my health. And I, I am one of the people who reads small print. Um, and I just realized that it said not even in particularly legalese obfuscated sort of uh, writing. It just made it very clear that they were at liberty to sell the data to third parties in any way, shape or form in perpetuity forever. And I just thought, and it had the audacity to charge me a hundred dollars to do it as well. And so it, I just felt like that was a real, real wake up call for me that a really exciting startup whose founder, of course, was intellectually charismatic and all these great things you expect. But I just found that was completely unforgivable. That, that was so buried. Had it been declared up front, I feel I would have reacted differently, but but I think in some ways that was you know dare I say it I'm glad I got the you know once bitten twice shy effect, uh, and and I'm certainly much more circumspect when installing apps or various things which I know are trying to make a quick hustle, and you know I think there's a there's a great illustration of you know two pigs in a barn. And one pig says to the other, it's brilliant here, isn't it? There's food and all the meals are free and it's warm and it's heated. And underneath it's it's got this caption of, if you're not paying for it, you are the product. And I think that in the sort of tech world is, is a really important litmus test. But as I just mentioned with 23andMe, even when you are paying for it, sometimes you still are the product. Um, and I think when it comes back to your original question of AI, I still would categorize myself as a sort of tech optimist. And I do think the more I look back into history, the more I think essentially the best of humanity does prevail. But the sobering part is there are always very bitter, tragic casualties that go along these things. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm letting technologists off the hook. Um, I think it's more just saying I think that's that's how we as consumers should try to align ourselves with the ban with with the brands that actually manage these interactions in the most transparent way. I, I'm not advocating for a nanny state. My my advocation is transparency. 
is don't try and hoodwink people. If you're going to sell their genetic data, tell them up front. It would, would be the case in point for that, how to do it differently. So it's a question of people saying what, what they're actually using this AI for, being very honest about it, and us being responsible enough to bother to read the T's and C's and make a decision based on what we find. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, I think it's a really complicated one of where does the government have a duty to step in and protect people who, let's call it what it is, haven't had the same privilege or education or upbringing that you and I have, uh, Harriet, they might not be so easily predisposed or confident to navigate the legal T's and C's of things. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's great if a society just says, well, you know, more fool you, you clicked on it, it's your fault. You know, I, I do think we don't, apply that uniformly across all levels of society be it age or any other disposition and so i think i think we should still have guidance and a degree of um protection to an extent but i think it's almost a little bit like advertising standards right you you should you should make it so that the average layperson does not purchase and then realize they made a mistake they should they should at least know, yeah, I knew full well. I mean, it's it's kind of like going to a casino and, you know, you, you, you know that the house wins, right? Even the dumbest gambler knows the house wins, right? I mean, look, look around all the gold and opulence, like who, who do you think is losing here? But, but yes, I think do people, you know, to use that analogy, do, do people need some sort of guide rails and help? to make sure that people aren't just taken advantage of and it destroys lives. Mm. Um, you know, I, I do think that's where the move fast, break stuff mantra of Silicon Valley and indeed many other tech sectors um, does does need some guide rails because it's not it's not cool to just be quite that cavalier with people's people's lives and indeed their futures, you know, really. Quite agree. Um... Sorry, long answer on that one, <laughs> but, but it, could, it could have been 10 times longer having having been a tech scout for Lego, I can assure you most of it, was, most of the work was ethics. <laughs> so I, I actually find it quite strange as I, I don't know, I can't speak for my design course these days, but I certainly feel it's an interesting provocation that doctors are taught ethics. I don't know why designers aren't and engineers aren't like a formal course in how to navigate an ethically fraught situation i think would be invaluable to any any course tutors listening please please integrate it <laughs> yeah. um i i i agree i think um you know it's a hot topic i think new york times share moral dilemmas quite often you know that it's um does seem to be something that people are struggling with um or mm. exploiting you don't know which one always um so, so it's almost addictive talking to you. I want to ask you about what you think about everything. Um, but I just want to go back um, just for to get a bit of a picture of how it all began. Because um, you, you did chemistry, but before chemistry, you were, you know, a sort of not normal child at school. <laughs> um, yeah, country bumpkin, as they say. <laughs> um, what, uh, what, what made you, what, what happened at school that made you end up in chemistry and then um and also what what were you like at school were you uh, yeah a bit of a bit of a misfit unsurprisingly i mean 
you know, uh, I'm not going to get the violin out too much, but being called Jude the days before Jude Law and having curly hair and my mom being half Nigerian in a very, very white uh, sort of rural town does not <laughs> does not make you blend in. Let's just put it that way. Um, at the same time, you know, I was really fortunate. My, my parents uh, had a stable marriage, very loving, very secure. So there's lots of great things going for me. And I think, you know, them both coming from an arts background supported that creativity, even if they they rather unfortunately didn't find immediate careers in, in arts and ended up being entrepreneurial and, and setting up a, a children's nursery. Um, and I think that had an, a, a consequential effect on me that I was, you know, not not through them being cynical, but of course, I was just aware that the realities of getting a profession in arts was very difficult. So even though I was busy enjoying sciences, but also, you know, doing ceramics in my lunch break um, at A-levels, I didn't really believe that I could get an artistic career. And it sounds silly in hindsight in the days of, you know, you know, Johnny Ive and people like this and Dieter Rams being household names. But I genuinely didn't know design was a career that was open to me. Um, and that's why I opted for, well, I better do, you know, it's a bit like they said, you know, you should do a trade. I was like, science is a good solid trade. I'll, I'll at least be able to pay my way in life. Um, but really it's been a fight to get back to redress that balance and have something without sounding too pretentious, but a bit more Renaissance, a bit more of a sort of, uh, you know, broader canvas in which to work where the, there is not a hard line between the art and the science or the technology and the humanity. Mm -hmm. you're here with me harriet gould for the lab matters podcast if you like what you hear please rate us on your favorite podcast platform i'm surprised um you didn't have any teachers that might have guided you and explained design and cross yeah it's it's difficult i had a i had a pretty you know he wouldn't mind me saying pretty screwball mad professor uh dnt teacher and I think he he really was an inspiration on me, but I wouldn't say through no fault of his own, he it would be hard looking back to give me the right careers advice. I don't think I was particularly stable or um, knew what I was doing. I mean, who does in their teens, right? But but yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not putting the the accusation on like he failed me or anything. He was he was a terrific guy, and I spent many a lunch hour just disassembling things like TVs and stuff like that and just learning. So I think he he really instilled a sort of confidence in, you know, self-discovery and learning how to learn, really. Mm. Um, and, and so even though I wouldn't say he was a very structured mentor, I think actually being comfortable with a lack of structure is weirdly what I draw on heavily in my work because guess what when you're deliberately taking projects which don't have a playbook or are in the vanguard you can't really rely on a phd you know that's that's kind of the point you you are by definition in the unknown and that's the thrill of it um so in in some in some ways you um you were that inquisitive child and you had the space to 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 do that yeah, uh, I think I think that's it. I, I remember, but but it's also something I think is maybe a little bit under acknowledged in that you know my parents both worked, and there was a little bit of a they certainly weren't you know Victorian or sort of children 
should be seen and not heard. But there was a little bit of a three strikes and you're out of if I said I was bored, my my mom and dad would be like, well, you could do this. And if I was like, nah, and we could do that. And it's like, nah. And then they're like, well, you're on your own. It's like the third one was like, all right, <laughs> you know, you figure it out. And and I think that's kind of a good training, really, for being in the creative industry, because, you know, you can go to an inspirational event, you can read an inspirational book, but after a certain point, you're going to have to generate the ideas yourself out of thin air. And, and that stimulus does play a part, whatever it is that the subconscious does. Um, but but it is also that resilience and confidence that you know, I'm I'm perhaps to someone listening in their early career thinking, oh, yeah, Jude's got it all figured out. He sounds very confident and can do this. And yeah, but it's like 20 years I've been doing this. So, you know, you speak to a, you speak to an athlete, you know, who's been doing it for 20 years. Of course, they're going to outrun you, outthrow you, whatever. Um, and, and I kind of think it's a little bit like a sort of creative gym. I've just been benching pretty hard for a lot of years. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm made of anything superhuman. It's it's basic stuff and basic techniques and just just, you know, again, unlike maybe the gym, it's not a macho grind. I genuinely love being curious. I, I feel like the biggest secret to the design profession is somehow I'm getting paid to be curious, which feels like the most childlike indulgence. But the difference is, unlike the Picasso saying of the inner child, is the difference is I'm bringing engineering rigor and business acumen to bear on top of the childlike mad professor hair you know persona so it's it's trying to marry the two the two poles really um that's the that's the work really i think you do it very well and i i think you do it with beautiful humility um now um just to finish off, and I don't really want to finish because I'm sure, well, maybe we'll have to talk again. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting to know what your dream future might might look like. I don't know if that could be a dream project or a, um, whatever it might be. Your fantasy. Yeah, I, I, yeah. No humility involved. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tricky because I find that often I work on sort of, you know, I mean, I'm hired as sort of a futurist in projects and I've done stuff for sort of big agencies and some household names. And that's very exciting. But really the the underlying thing of that is the humility to realize you could create the future in your own head and produce a little widget and you can put it out into the the blogosphere or the, you know, social media. And, and yes, it can go viral and, and you can amazingly seem to sort of put a little dint in people's consciousness that maybe something should exist. At the same time, you can work with a company like Lego or Ikea or any of these sorts of big players where even doing a very small thing, you're impacting colossal sales revenues production units per whatever um and so for me it, it's it's the enjoyment i find is going in and you know this is going to sound an absolutely terrible analogy but it's almost like being a chef and looking in a fridge and going huh we've got some interesting ingredients here what are we going to cook that's going to taste good and i think that is the futurism but unlike a omnipotent you know, chef, it's it's a team. 
and actually having worked in some kitchens uh you know actually kitchens really are a team effort as well so even that sort of lone myth of the the Gordon Ramses as these screaming tyrants I think a lot of that's theatre and and there's actually a huge amount of spree decor and you know when the cameras aren't rolling you, you've got to have you've got to have the love you know and you've got to have the humility and the compassion and the being able to see something in someone else that maybe even they don't see themselves I feel that's one of the most you know I mean that's the stuff you really keep in touch with people for years is because you discover something quite intimate and quite surprising about each other um, and unlock people's potential and indeed within yourself I mean having done Big Life Fix Yes, I was hired as a designer, but that was so much of a two-way interaction with all of the people I worked with. It was never a sort of strutting around as the superstar designer. It, the, the joy for all of us was it was a collaboration and we were often as uh, left with our heads spinning with the experience as much as the people were of our supposed design chops, you know, and skills. But But we were sort of, so invested in their their journey that it was a two-way thing and I think for me that that's the thing even in sometimes the most unlikely of companies it, it's it's still you know as up as up in Edinburgh at a scanning electron microscope company and again you would think that was the most you know detailed scientific thing but so much of our discussion was about human interactions and perception and what does this mean? <laughs> you know, so so yeah, I I absolutely love these sorts of things. And and I think that's sometimes the misconception of the being a technologist is it's really about the story and the technology, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the human side of what that means for us to live with that technology. And I think to maybe finally answer your question, it, it is a sense of you're creating the future rather than crystal balling it. It, and I think that is the thrill, is that you 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 have to sort of ask those big questions of what if, because you might inadvertently start to create something that that influences a lot of things, and that's that's really the thrill. Mm -hmm. Well, you certainly uh, inspire me, Jude. Um, thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure having you here, um, and hopefully we'll speak again before long. Absolutely. I look forward to that. <laughs>